Good Wednesday evening to everybody. Keep enjoying your meal. We're going to get started. As we have uh, come back this fall after a summer break, we are kicking off our Wednesday nights with the meal again, and then also with the month of September, we're going to have a special emphasis on how to answer questions that your one may be asking you. Uh, we're going to do a whole equipping conference every Wednesday night through the month of September, dealing with arguments that people have, questions that they're wrestling with, that the enemy may be using in their heart to keep them from opening their heart to the gospel. So you're going to find Wednesday nights through this month extremely powerful. Uh, you're going to be hearing from Josh McClellan. He's the young one on the left and the still young one, but a little more uh, seasoned in life. His dad, many of you may know as Dr. McClellan, who was very instrumental in a lot of ministry at Oklahoma Baptist University and lives right behind our church, but also has a brand new ministry assignment. So I wanted you to hear very quickly from Dr. McClellan, what God is doing in his life so we can be praying for his ministry assignment. And then you're going to be greatly blessed as you hear what God's doing in his son's ministry as well. So Dr. McClellan, if you'd come and share what God's doing. Well, thank you, Pastor. Um, as you give to the cooperative program, as you pray for Southern Baptists all these years, one of the things that you pray for is for the preparation of people to pastor churches, share the gospel, go to the nations. Well, part of the way we do that is through our seminaries. Our seminaries are instrumental in doing that. Some of you have been affected by that kind of training uh, or have family members that do, do those things. Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary has historically been uh, the greatest sender of missionaries in, uh, from a seminary in SBC history. So it has a great heritage. I was uh, unexpectedly asked to return to Southwestern, which is my alma mater, and to head up an initiative for the training uh, of Hispanics and Latin Americans to reach the nation. So right now we have a master's program that I oversee with about 600 students in every country in Latin America, the Caribbean, a couple of European countries. We are about to expand our programs uh, to women, associate degrees, bachelors, and a number of other degrees. We expect that within two years, between uh, 1,500 and 2,000 Latin Americans and Hispanics in the United States will be being prepared to pastor churches, plant churches, and to lead their churches all over Latin America. And I met with the IMB representatives uh, on campus just a couple of days ago where we are seeking to train Latin Americans directly to go to the nations, training them in Spanish and in other contexts. There are many places in the world where they can go and they have entrance. They don't have any baggage that some of us uh, have to take with us in the Middle East and other places. So not only as a receiving harvest force, but as a sending uh, force for missionary work. So we're, I'm thrilled, I, I serve as the professor of missions in the Roy Fish School of Missions at, and Evangelism at Southwestern and director of Hispanic Studies and Latin American Initiatives. It's great to serve you. It's great to serve with you. It's great to be a Southern Baptist who cares about sharing the gospel, reaching people, planting churches, and uh, reaching the nations. I love this church. I thank the, the, the Lord for your pastor, his passion, his gifts, his dedication. Uh, I'm blessed every time I hear him preached and challenged, so uh, I'm really grateful. My son, Josh, 
is a much better preacher than I am. He's a much better scholar than I am. He's just much better than everything that I am, and he's also much younger than I am. So at any rate, I'm, I'm grateful that he's here tonight. All right, this is his son. Come on up, Josh. Uh, I got real excited when I found out Josh and his family were visiting our church. He was a pastor of a church in Pryor, Oklahoma with a dear friend of mine uh, who grew up here in Oklahoma. They launched this church in Pryor, and they were engaged there. And I've always heard about Josh's ministry and his family, but never got a chance to serve alongside with them. And so as they started landing back here in Oklahoma City, uh, we started finding out more about what God was doing. He was in the Baptist Collegiate Ministry in Chickasha and some other ministries, pastoring, and has a real heart for apologetics. And so when I found out about that component, uh, I wanted him to come help equip us as a body of believers in how we can have conversations with people who don't know the Lord, who our ones are, and maybe relate or maybe be better equipped to answer some questions they may have or how we can take those questions they're wrestling with that have been wrestled with throughout human history and point them to his story, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I'm going to interview Josh on a couple things here, and then I'm going to turn it over to him. And then, like I said, every Wednesday night through September, he will be bringing a different question that lost people are asking that we need to be able to speak into or step into. So uh, let's just start right there. Introduce your family, some who are here tonight, some who are over in charge in our middle school. But tell us a little bit about your family. For sure. Well, I'm grateful for the chance to be with you guys tonight. Um, for those that may be watching um, through the internet uh, as well, I'm grateful for the chance just to be a part this morning I, or this evening. I, I hope that what's discussed can be beneficial to you and helpful to you as you continue to seek to honor the Lord with your life and also to make disciples and to advance the kingdom of God and share the gospel with those who need to hear it. My wife, Melinda, we've been married for 20 years, 20 years this year. And uh, maybe we need to help you with some answers. That was, that was, that was really poorly done. Oh, wow. Um, really poorly done. 20 years, yeah. Uh, we have two boys. Our oldest, Noah, is a freshman at Bethany High School. Excuse me for a second. Is it really two? It is two boys? Okay. All right, just making sure we're okay here. Keep yeah. going. We're off to a great, we're off to a great start. Um, and then our youngest, Luke, is a sixth grader at Bethany Middle School this year. And so that's our family. And uh, we're grateful to be here. Uh, I'm grateful for just even as we have attended here and, uh, over the last few months, just the role that the student ministries have played in blessing my own children and helping them continue to grow spiritually. I've been super grateful for that. So I know the Lord's been speaking into your heart about ministering to the body of Christ in general, not just here at PCBC, but with an apologetics ministry and, and, and those kind of things. Explain how God kind of put that vision on your heart and what that means and, and your passion for these things. Yeah, absolutely. So throughout my seminary experience, I had the chance to sit under and be taught by some really noteworthy apologists. And the word apologetics, just in case to make sure everyone's familiar with that term, it doesn't mean we're apologizing. It's, a, it's from a Greek word, apologia, which means to give a defense. So it speaks to just the ways that we as Christians give a defense for the truthfulness of our faith, how we would respond to attacks, challenges to the truthfulness of the Christian faith, and how Christianity is true in the midst of a world full of other options that we would say are 
not the truth. And so, uh, so I had a chance to sit under and really learn from some, some really noteworthy apologists, kind of fed a hunger for that, uh, continued in my own education to be equipped in those areas, and throughout my ministry have just kind of had outlets to be able to speak and teach on those things as well through my years of student ministry and then also through collegiate ministry for BCM work here in Oklahoma, I had a chance to teach at Super Summer and teach at False Creek and speak to churches and all kinds of other opportunities to really work, particularly with students and young people, in terms of addressing some of those challenging questions that they might have about Christianity and about other religions and things of that nature. And so just recently, I feel like as God has sort of burdened my heart for where we are today culturally, where Christians are no longer at the center of who we are culturally as a society, but have really been pushed to the margins. Our ideas, our beliefs are starting to be looked at with more and more suspicion by the world. And as really, we, we have relatively no allies as we think about uh, our broader culture when it comes to the truth. I think there's a great need for us to continue to really, I think, speak as the church to people about what makes what we believe to be true um, and why other things are lies and why they're error. And so God has just kind of burdened my heart for the need for that, I think, in the church. We also live in a church culture that is very experiential. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but... Uh, Man, I, I can tell you, in interacting with people and talking to people, and particularly students through the years, they, they really can't articulate any foundation or understanding of basic Christian doctrine and truth. They can explain having felt something in a worship service and feeling a need to get closer to God. They can't really explain the gospel, can't explain why Christianity might be more true than Mormonism or, or something other than that. Uh, or why their life or their spiritual choice is different than that kid that they sit next to in fourth period that buys into, quite frankly, a bunch of Buddhist ideology. And so in the midst of that, there's a great need, I think, for speaking to developing a Christian mind and learning to think but also live biblically uh, in that way and how it impacts and affects all of life and reality. So awesome. Yeah. So I don't want to take too much time. I wanted you to know, Josh, I'm going to turn it over to Josh. Let me remind you what Romans 10 says. It says, faith comes from hearing the word of God. People are saved as they come under the word. You will never argue anybody into the kingdom. You will never explain everything to somebody that le but you can use these conversations to then bridge into the gospel and get to those conversations where you share the truth as you help them wrestle with their search for truth. So take some good notes, dial in. We may have a little bit of time for question and answer at the end. If not, Josh will be here till midnight tonight and stay back as long as you need him. And we'll answer any questions you do have. So at this time, Josh, why don't you take over and lead the way? Well, take a moment, if you would, and just pray with me uh, as we begin. I'd really like to ask the Lord to bless our time, so let's pray. God, we thank you for the great privilege of being here together, gathered together. God, I thank you for the chance to be with your church tonight. I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, just examine your word and your truth here. God, we know that you are the source of all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. 
Not us, not me, but you. And so I pray tonight that you would be our teacher. And God, I pray that you would increase our faith in the truth of the gospel and the truth of what you revealed to us in scripture. God, not only to deepen our own faith, but also to equip us to be able to speak relevantly, clearly, powerfully to a world that desperately needs to see the truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what I'd like to do over the course of the next four weeks is Tonight, I would like to talk about the subject of suffering and evil. No small topic. Um, next week, I would like to really just kind of speak to kind of practical considerations in terms of how to just have good conversations with people. <laughs> and so just some practical tools to do that. The week after that, I would like to deal with what I believe is really, and I don't think I would get any disagreement from anyone on this, but really what I believe is the most pressing and important issue that we will be confronting the culture on for our lifetime, and that is the issue of gender and sexuality. Amen. And so we've got to, as the church, be equipped to how to speak to that, to a culture that is absolutely lost and absolutely confused on those issues. So that'll be week three. And then week four, I think the desire is to maybe make that more just a question and answer time. And so if you have questions and things, maybe write those down and certainly be prepared to bring those and um, we'll do our best to maybe see if we can speak to those in week four. The question of suffering and evil is probably one that is the question that causes more people to abandon the idea of God than any other question or issue that we might deal with. Statistics, last I read, say that somewhere around two-thirds of university professors that leave and abandon theism, the belief that there is a God, do so on the basis of this issue. Do so on the basis of this issue. So it's certainly a critical one, and it's certainly an important one. It may be the most challenging issue in many regards that we have to address and try to find an answer to as human beings. And so it is no small topic. It's a, it's a topic that we should approach with great humility, even as Christians. Um, we shouldn't approach it arrogantly. We shouldn't approach it like, this is easy. This is no big deal. It shouldn't be an issue. No, this is a big issue. <laughs> and this is a topic that we should approach with great humility. And it's challenging because even though I believe Christianity offers the most compelling answer to this question, it's not a perfect answer doesn't fill in all the holes. And so I just want to start by saying that, that listen, hopefully we can approach this with an attitude of humility as we move forward and we examine these things. Um, one of the reasons for me I believe that Christianity offers a compelling answer is not just because the answer in itself is just really perfect and works everything out, but because it's just the best answer you kind of have out there. <laughs> it's better than the other answers. If you take the option of, of, of basically embracing atheism, the idea that there is no God, you have to take everything that sort of comes with that. Now, the worldview behind atheism is called the natural worldview, naturalism. And the natural worldview is one at its foundation that believes that there is no God, hence there is nothing supernatural, right? There is also no, nothing spiritual. So you are a material being. You have no soul, you have no spirit. 
You are nothing more than a complex accumulation of matter and molecules. By the way, your actions are nothing more than the result of biochemical reactions inside your body. There's no will, there's no <clears throat> freedom in that sense because you're just a machine. So, um, <clears throat> so we see that those are aspects of a natural worldview that we have to sort of contend with. Naturalism also, if there is no God, it means there's no ultimate meaning in life. There's no purpose behind it. And on top of that, if you embrace a natural worldview, if you buy into atheism, then you have to accept the fact that that worldview basically glorifies the victory of the powerful and strong over the weak. That's the story that naturalism tells. So the idea that pain and suffering is something bad is difficult to make a case for, at least philosophically, from a natural worldview. We would look at the strong conquering the weak in that perspective as being a noble thing, a necessary thing for life to continue to evolve and advance. And so if you're going to accept that there is no God, you have to accept everything that comes with that. On top of the fact that you really have no basis for determining what is good and evil in the first place, right? Because you have no moral law giver, hence there is no ultimate moral law. So the fact that they even call something evil means that they're having to borrow from our worldview in the first place. Because there's no real basis for being able to determine what's evil and good based upon a natural worldview. So that's an option. I just think it's a really, really poor option. Most of the conversations I have with people about this issue revolve around that option. Um, doesn't mean that people don't embrace other faiths or aren't open to other faiths. But most of the conversations I have with people about the issue of evil and suffering is really how does Christianity compare to the idea of there not being a God. But I do want to talk about another religion real quick in terms of this issue, and that is the issue of Buddhism. Buddhism is a pantheistic religion, so it's the idea that God is an impersonal force that's just sort of in everything. Some would say that Buddhism is really sort of atheism, and their case is fairly strong because it's not that God, this impersonal force, has any kind of personality. So in that way, you can't really even say he has character, that he is good or you know, he has attributes of goodness or greatness in that way. He's just an impersonal force that is in everything in the universe. And Buddhism's answer is that, listen, and it was created really to address the issue of suffering, but Buddhism's answer is that we should detach from emotion and feeling in this life and then one day ultimately hope to become swallow up in, swallowed up into a sea of undifferentiated being. How's that sound? But that's essentially Buddhism. Buddhism teaches detachment from earthly emotion and feeling. Any Star Wars fans in the house? <laughs> the Jedi are great Buddhists. Great Buddhists. What does Yoda say at one point? Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to what? suffering. What do you see the Jedi way as in that story is detachment from emotion and from feeling. Another great scholar of the modern age, 
Any of you guys seen the movie Kung Fu Panda? Any grandkids? Yeah? Kung Fu Panda? There's a turtle. Master Uguay. There's a line he has at one point. The raccoon, Shifu, comes to him and he says, Oh no, have you heard what's happened? Have you heard the bad news? You know what Uguay's response is? Oh, Shifu, there is just news. There is no good or bad. By the way, one of the reasons I use illustrations for movies is that ideas are being taught in the media that we consume oftentimes whether we realize it or not. There is only news. There is no good news or bad news. It's Buddhism. So is the Buddhist response an adequate one? Is it a compelling one? Is it a persuasive one? People have to decide that for themselves. When I look at the other options, Christianity seems to me to be a more compelling and powerful alternative to that question of evil and suffering and reconciling its presence in the world and even reconciling God's existence with evil and suffering than the alternatives. I'm going to try to deal with two questions tonight. I'm going to try to move this, through this pretty quickly. Again, we're talking about a topic that we could, we could discuss for hours and hours and really not talk about everything that needs to be talked about. And we're going to try to put some answers into about 15 to 20 minutes, all right? So just be aware that as we discuss these things, we are discussing just enough to scratch the surface. But hopefully it will be enough to give you guys some key points as it relates to these questions. Here's the first question. How can God be good when he allows so much evil and suffering in the world? So how do we reconcile the existence of a good God with a world filled with evil, suffering, pain, and injustice? I want to give you five responses to that. These are historic Christian responses. This is not new. This is not something that's come about in the last 50 years. God has been working in and through his church, brilliant men and women that he has equipped with understanding and knowledge to speak to the world for the church and help provide answers to these kinds of questions for centuries, okay? So these are historic Christian answers to these questions. Here's number one. And, and, and the answer, and by the way, the answer can be all of these things combined. It's not as if we have to commit to one or the other. All of them can, can sort of serve as a cohesive response to this question. But how can... God be good when he allows so much evil and suffering in the world. Here's number one, the free will argument. God bestows a measure of freedom to human beings to make choices. God can still be good, albeit allowing evil and suffering in the world, because God has extended a measure of freedom to human beings to make choices, albeit evil and wicked ones. And so... God's goodness can be preserved through an argument like that. Again, that's not the whole answer, but it can be a part of the answer. Number two, the greater good argument. This is the idea that God allows evil things to happen in order that a greater good may be accomplished. Exhibit A here is the cross of Christ, right? Listen, the greatest evil that's ever been done on the earth is that man killed God. Listen, 
starving children in Africa, human trafficking in Southeast Asia, all of those things, as evil and disgusting as they are, are not the greatest evil that has transpired on this earth. The greatest act of evil that has ever taken place on this earth is that man killed God. And yet through that act, what happened? God accomplished the greater good of redemption, right? So God used that evil, allowed that evil for what? For the accomplishment of a greater good. Now, sometimes it can be hard as we look at a world that's just ravaged by so much sin, pain, hardship, injustice. Say, I don't see how God's getting any greater good out of that. And I would say two things to that. I would say, one, it's fair. And maybe it's difficult for us to reconcile some of those things in some ways. Maybe some other answers that we have as Christians can help reconcile some of those things. But second, I would say, just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that it can't make sense. Are you with me? I mean, if you are the supreme all-knowing one and nothing gets by you, then maybe. But I know that's not, my, uh, that's not me. So, it is possible that maybe, just maybe, an infinitely wise and knowing God understands some things that are beyond your capacity. And we have to be okay with some measure of trust in that God. Okay? So, the greater good argument. God allows these things to happen because he has a greater good in mind. Number three, the eschatological argument. That is a big Greek word for the end, the eschatos, the idea of what's to come. And so one of the arguments that we believe the Bible presents is that God will make all things right. God will address all of these things going on. He's just going to do it at a point in time in the future. All right? So as we see all these things transpiring and happening, and we sit here and we say, what is God doing? Where is God at? Why isn't he dealing with it? He will deal with it. But he will deal with it at a point in time in the future, at the end. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see God reference that, where he talks about those who are afflicting people, that there will come a day where I will afflict the afflictor. It hasn't happened yet, but it will one day. So that's a part of our answer as Christians. And then number four, what I believe is, in a way, it's not an answer to that question directly. But I also believe it is the most compelling answer that we as Christians offer when it comes to this question. And it's a unique answer. No one offers this kind of answer anywhere else, any other worldview, in any other religion, and it's this, that God in Christ identifies with us in our suffering. That God in Christ identifies with us in our suffering. Scripture tells us that Jesus has endured everything and experienced everything and walked through temptation and difficulty, and endured everything that we have endured as human beings. 
And that's a unique answer that God would seek to come and identify with humanity in their plight. I remember some years ago, it was a particularly difficult semester of school and the reading load that particular semester for my seminars was just brutal. And uh, my wife paid a great price because I was, even when I was home, I was pretty distant. But I would pretty much stay up most nights and just try to read until I fell asleep. And I remember this one particular night I'd read and I read and I read and finally I just, my brain couldn't handle anymore and so I sat it down. I turned on a movie just to kind of unwind for a few minutes before trying to go to sleep. I didn't end up unwinding, I ended up watching this entire movie, but this movie was called The Impossible. And it was this story of this family, it was based on a true story. They were a British family living in Japan that had gone on vacation to Thailand. And they were down on the beach in Thailand and on this particular vacation, a tsunami wave comes through and washes out the resort where they are staying. The mom and the oldest son, there's three kids, the mom and the oldest son are washed inland with this tsunami wave multiple miles. The father and the two youngest somehow manage to end up staying there at the resort. They're separated at that point, but they all manage to survive and live. The mother is just absolutely torn up from just debris and other things in the midst of being washed inland as long as they were. The son is able to find her, but she needs real serious medical care. The dad is able to find the two children, and then he decides to leave them there to go searching for the wife and the other son. What ends up happening is everybody gets separated in this foreign country. At the end of the movie, the children, the two youngest children at the resort had been put in a van because they were getting everyone out of there. The dad was going a different way and the other two were trying to make it through the woods to find some place where the mom can get medical care and they all managed to meet in this one village. Hence the name The Impossible. That's the story. But I remember as I was watching this movie and I remember sitting and watching the mom and the son like struggle for air to come up out of the water and the mom trying to get to the son, and the son screaming for his mom, and then, where are the other kids? Where's my husband? Where's my wife? And thinking about going through something like that, I began to feel anger. Like, I, I was wrapped up in that story, in that moment. Like, what if I was going through this? What if I was going through this? And I began to feel, I began to feel anger toward God as I'm watching all this, at the thought of losing my children to a tsunami wave like that, losing a spouse. And I remember as I was watching that and the emotions were real for me in that moment, thinking, would any of the answers that I just read off to you mean anything to me in the midst of that? And so Josh, the seminary student, is like, would the free will argument mean anything to me? I said, nope. Would that keep my heart from going cold toward God? No, not really. Would the greater good argument mean a whole lot to me? Nope. I really don't care about a greater good at that point. I just lost my kids. I'm angry inside. I thought about the eschatological argument. Would that speak to me and cause me to say it is well with my soul in the midst of that situation? Nope. But then I thought about this one. I thought, Jesus identifies with me in my suffering.
God understands what I'm going through because God has been through it. That's a powerful answer. That is a uniquely Christian answer. No one else puts that answer forward. No one else posits a God who steps down into the human experience and doesn't just live in a castle, but experience all that is hard and difficult about life as human beings. That in Christ, God identifies with me in my pain. And I remember thinking, that would help. My heart might not grow cold toward God from that. It's a uniquely Christian answer. It doesn't answer the question directly, does it? But it does speak powerfully to how we as Christians reconcile this evil and suffering and this pain that we experience with a God that sits out there at the same time. I want to give you a fifth part of this that I think is important to acknowledge. I saved it for the last, but I think it's important for us to recognize, and that is this. In light of all those things, here's the bottom line. God doesn't owe us an answer. Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all things therein. He made you. He made us. He has the right to do whatever he wants with us. And he doesn't owe us anything. Who knows whether we'd even understand it in the first place, but he certainly doesn't owe us an answer. In the same way, you think about Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 41, where he says, um, Isaiah 45, verse 9, what right does the pot have to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? You with me? What right do we have to look at God and say, I don't think you should do it that way. Who are you, O dust of the earth, to challenge almighty, all-knowing God? That's the answer Job gets. Go read Job 38 through 42. Four chapters. Four chapters. God says the same thing to Job over and over and over. Where were you when? Where were you when? Where were you when? Where were you when? It gets pretty repetitive, but it goes on for four chapters. Where were you when? I want to read you one particular verse. It's just, it just sort of hits you between your teeth. In Job chapter 41. Job 41, 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You know what Job's answer is after this whole spiel by God? I'm not worthy. You're right. Job is called for a response from God in this whole book. God responds and he says, you're right. And by the way, God never answers his question, does he? He never tells him why it happened. Could you imagine trying to have that conversation, by the way? I mean, I, I, I'm sure, I mean, I, I assume maybe God and Job have worked that out on the other end of it in eternity. <laughs> but could you imagine if God said, well, let me tell you about this little conversation I was having with the devil and how all that played out. 
Nevertheless, God doesn't explain any of that. He just says, who are you to question me? I love that verse. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So we see that, listen, God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. It's simply grace that God would invite us in to know and understand these things at all. So be humble. Be humble and realize that on some level, there's no perfect answer to these kinds of things, whether we wouldn't understand in the first place or God doesn't owe us that either. Nevertheless, I think that's an appropriate Christian response to that particular question. I think all five of those things help us with that. I'm going to really quickly try to give you question number two. Why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe you've heard this quote before. That's only happened once and he volunteered for it. That's a great quote. I think it's an appropriate quote. It's not original to me. Someone else said that. But I think that's true. And what it does is it causes us to to sort of question the framework of that question in the first place. Because it sort of assumes that we're good, right? In the first place. That someone is good. The Bible tells us that none of us are good. So I think that's the first place to start is this idea that good people who deserve something from God, it's not a really biblical foundation for asking that question in the first place. The Bible repeatedly describes us as those who have done wicked. There is none who do good, no, not one. So I think the question is poorly worded, for one. I think a better way to think of it is how do we address or deal with this, why do bad things happen to people that aren't the result of personal choices or actions? That's a little more fair question, okay? Why do things happen to us that aren't the result of personal choices or actions? I want to give you six quick answers to that, all right? Number one is this. It's what I would call the pollution of sin. What you see throughout the Bible is that sin has sort of polluted the earth and it rubs off on all of us, all right? One of the really interesting places we see that is in some of the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. We see rules and we see regulations that God establishes in the Old Testament when it relates to cleanliness and, you know, and, and things of that nature in terms of the things that happen with our bodies and things that, quite frankly, for us in a modern context, have a hard time relating to and understanding. But one of the things, well, there's multiple things that work there, but one of the things that work in all of that apart from just God saying, trying to set his people apart and be holy, apart from distinguishing Israel from pagans, is this issue of just how the pollution of sin impacts all of us. And so that's part of why things happen to us, is simply because the pollution of sin on the earth rubs off on us. That's part of why those things happen. Number two, um, coming back to Job, Job actually endures these bad things because he is righteous. He sort of flips that argument on its head. Because Job is righteous, he has to endure all of these things. Chew on that a little bit, right? Job didn't know that. But we know that as we know what Job does not at the beginning of that story. So Job actually suffers. Job actually goes through hardship and difficulty because he is righteous. Number three, it displays the power of God and it's a source of spiritual power. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul calls us to suffer unto the power of God. 
So he says, we endure difficulty, hardship, injustice unto the power of God, that the power of God becomes manifested out of us to the world as we walk through difficulty and suffering and pain. Not simply because we're enduring it for like asceticism's sake, like because we're going through those difficult things by themselves, in and of themselves, but because what we're doing and going through those things, but not allowing it to steal our joy, is we're demonstrating that our lives are committed to something other than the things that are of value here in this world. So even as health and material things and other things in our lives are at a loss, we find joy, we find contentment, we find our security in the gospel, our hope in the gospel, and that demonstrates another worldliness about us. And so, hence, power is displayed through our lives. James 1, 2 through 4 talks about trials of many kinds that we go through. That word there for trials is just the trials of life. It's not necessarily attached to our difficulty or trials because we're Christians just the trials of life. What does he say that does when we endure those trials? It basically makes us spiritually strong. So those difficulties, that pain, some of that suffering and hardship, what does it do? It makes us spiritually strong. Luke 13, 4, the Tower of Siloam. Remember that story where a tower has fallen and 18 people have died and people are wondering, like, why has God allowed this thing to happen? Jesus gives a response, and Jesus' answer is, I'm not really going to tell you. I can't tell you why it happened. I won't tell you why it happened, but here's what I can tell you, that this is an opportunity, if you're still here, to repent. So, what can we say? We could also say that, why do things happen to people? Why do bad things happen to people? Because we see that they are a warning to repent. Generally speaking, People see and experience those things and walk through those things in life, and they don't stay in the same place. They go one direction or other. They draw toward God or they draw away from God in resentment. One of the two, but we see that. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. It's a great passage. It's the jars of clay passage. We see there that Paul communicates that one of the reasons these things happen is to help us to long for the life to come. Hence, the early church declared Maranatha, God come quickly. Why? Because this life <laughs> is hard. It causes us to detach from this world and long for the life to come. So why does God allow those things to happen? To deepen our longing for the eternal kingdom that he will bring one day. The answer to this biblically is diverse. There is an incredible wealth of scripture that speaks to this issue. And this is just sort of a representation of it. It's not exhaustive on this topic, but hopefully what we can see there, the reason these things happen, the reason bad things happen, suffering happens, pain happens, difficulty happens, has a variety of reasons according to the scripture. And many of those are very good and beneficial, particularly for those of us who are Christians. So that's a really, really quick roller coaster ride, maybe you could say through those questions. Um, there's much more obviously to say, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a biblical foundation for how we would answer those questions. I do want to add this here in closing. Pastor and I were talking about this just a little bit earlier, and I've kind of alluded to it, but I want to just kind of 
hit on this a little, little more deeply. And that is this. 2 Peter 1.20 tells us that in the mind of God, the story he wanted to tell was a story that started with redemption. And then he decided to create. So redemption is where he started. Creation facilitates redemption. He didn't start by saying, I want to create, and then get caught in a situation where he's like, oops, I guess I'm going to have to redeem now. No, in the mind of God, the story he wanted to tell is a story that started with redemption. Creation served redemption. You following me? This is the plan of God. The plan of God, the path, the story that God chooses to follow, the story that he chooses to write, is a story that has at its center the suffering and death of Jesus. That's the primary and central means by which God chooses to reveal himself to man. Now that is worth thinking about. God chose that. That is, that's a, is that not enough to like just let you sit and try to, try to meditate on that thought for a while and wrap your brain around that? I know it is for me. But that's... The story that God wanted to tell, the story God wanted to tell was a story in which he reveals himself in Christ primarily, centrally, through the story of his suffering and death. That should impact the way that we think about suffering and evil. It should cause us not to simply look at it and spurn it, but to realize that things that are good can happen through it. God doesn't shy away from it. God's not afraid of it. God endures it. And so I think our response as Christians is not simply to let those things be things that create bitterness toward God, resentment toward God, things that we look at <laughs> with an attitude almost of avoidance. It's not that we go looking for it, but we embrace it and we endure it because we know that God can and will accomplish much as a result of it. Let's pray. God, I pray that uh, I pray that these things have been clear, helpful. And God, I pray that, um, God, you would just cause these things that we've talked about tonight to draw us to a deeper love and affection and faithfulness to you. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Bill. Amen. Well, there's a starter for you. How about that? We got more to come. A lot of things to wrestle with there and a lot of other stuff. Uh, don't miss the last part of what was just said. Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. That plan, as you're speaking to somebody, finite is never going to be able to explain infinite truth, infinite wisdom. But we can speak into those things. And people who are wrestling with these concepts, if you can turn the conversation back to the answers, pointing back to Christ, what Christ has done to solve the issue of evil, to solve the issue of suffering, and the suffering he endured, let the argument eventually bridge to the answers. And we'll learn how to do that over the next few weeks. We want to have a time of prayer before our praise and worship team need to kick in. Uh, you'll see prayer requests on your tables. A couple things. We want to pray for Dr. McClellan's new ministry and for what God's doing at Southwestern. We want to pray for our ones and how we can engage them with the gospel. 
Bob Spees called in. He's had a setback in his health and has requested prayer tonight. Uh, also, we want to pray for the Franklin Graham Crusade that's coming through on the 25th of September. Be praying for that. That'll be at the Capitol Lawn. Be praying for God to draw people uh, through that ministry and what's happening there. So we'll be praying for them. We want to pray for what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happening in our nation. There's just a lot to pray for. So we'll be here for the next three days, and uh, we'll pray over all these things, right? So let's gather together. If you want to pray around the tables, maybe share something that's going on in your heart or your hurt, uh, share that tonight so they can be praying for you, and I'll close us in about seven to eight minutes. Let's pray.